Thank you, Paul. And today marks the end of our uh, journey in the book of Micah. You remember when we started back in January, when it was cold outside? <laughs> oh, <laughs> well, it's supposed to warm up this week, I think. But it is spring, and we're headed that way. So uh, what has the book of Micah been like? You know, every week we've started with a reading of the entire chapter like this. It's a little dissonant for some of us, right? Uh, it's certainly not like reading from one of the Gospels about Jesus or a letter from Paul or Peter or John. And it's not a story from the Old Testament. It's a prophet. Now, think with me for a minute about the way our Bibles are arranged from cover to cover. The first five books are called the Law or the Torah, and then more books continue the story of God's redemption through His people Israel. So those, that first section of the Old Testament is a narrative. Then it stops after the book of Esther, where the people are in exile, and you get five books of poetry or wisdom. So the first section was how Israel lived. The middle section is about how God's people should always live. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, right? And then with Isaiah in the Old Testament, you get this start of the prophets. Isaiah all the way through Malachi. We call them the major, the larger prophets, and the minor prophets. Micah is embedded in these 12 at the end. And then, of course, we have our New Testament. So the whole voice of prophecy doesn't sound like the rest of the Bible. Well, that's right, because it's not. Embedded in these prophets, not just Micah, but all of those prophets from Isaiah to Malachi, are basically two themes that keep getting woven in and out and back and forth. The first theme is God's people are in sin, and God is not very pleased with them. It's a call to identify their sin, to repent of it, and to turn back to God. They act kind of like uh, in your home, you have a smoke detector, right, or a CO2 detector. In the old days, they called it canaries in a cage, right? So the idea is, if smoke is coming from a certain part of your house, it'll rise, hit the smoke detector, go off, and warn you before the fire gets to you. That's what a prophet was. God's early warning system. If you don't repent, you will be exiled out of God's land. But there was a second theme that was woven in and beautifully developed prophet by prophet, and it was one of hope and restoration. So that even if they didn't repent, God would still bring his Messiah, bring his kingdom to earth, and forgive all of their sins. The prophets are standing back here on a canvas painting in broad brushes, and it's only until we read the New Testament, Jesus comes, that we see how many of those lines now 
get a particular form and shape that we recognize. That's prophecy. So today, as we conclude the book, I'd like to take those two themes and show you how Micah handles those, just as we wrap it up and really impress it on our hearts. Now, the first one, I'll just say it, God hates evil. God is a God who hates evil. You see, I would love to start with the second one. You know what's coming. We've been singing about it all morning. God is a good God. He is a forgiving God. He is a loving God. But before we talk about forgiveness, you have to talk about what God forgives. Why is there a need to forgive? Otherwise, everything's just flat. So, can I just remind you that the Bible talks about evil with a number of different words. Sin is the common one, but Micah and the prophets use many. Let's just stop for a moment and make sure we're all on the same page here. What is evil? Because if you are in some circles of education or culture, evil is what the majority decides is not to be done or thought about. That is, it's a socially constructed concept. And if enough people think fill in the blank is wrong, then we'll pass a law against it, we'll put a fine on it, we'll shame people who do it. That's societal evil. And that's always happened, and it's happening as we speak as well. The biblical view of evil is not a, could we say, a, a uh, community, group speak kind of a thing that goes like this, but it's rather a top-down approach that says, God knows what is good and what is evil. In fact, he is good. So therefore, as that trickles down, we embrace the divine definition. We don't create our own. We see this in Genesis chapter 3, where the first temptation was all about that. Who gets to say what is right and what is wrong? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So what we have then is this picture of evil as what God says evil is. I haven't given you a definition yet. Let me give you an illustration. The Bible looks at evil not as a thing in itself, but as the absence of goodness, which is a thing in itself. So for instance, you ever have a hole in your sock, in your heel or your toe? The, the hole is an absence of sockness, <laughs> right? It's not a thing in it. I didn't say, did you ever spill mustard on your sock? I said, did you ever have a hole in your sock? Did you have a removal of sock threads? Yeah, sure, we all do. That is evil. It is the absence of God and goodness. It, it's real, but it's not a substance. Now I'm talking theological language, but let me then tell you then what 
my working definition of evil is. It's anything that displeases God who wants all things and people in his universe to please him. It's anything that falls short of the standard of what God says is good and pleasing to him. It is a whole and I don't mean W-H, I mean H. He is whole. He is everything. He is complete. And less than that makes a minus, a negation. That's what evil is. It's not up to me. Oh, I think it's wrong that, well, okay. But what does God think about this person or this thing? That's the most important. And then, if I could just drill a wee bit deeper and say, some people think that this idea of evil is like, well, if God says it, okay, I, I hear you, it's God's rule book. Well, if he said it, he can just wave it, right? He's the cosmic God, he can do anything. So if there's sin, why would it upset him? He can just, you know, click his heavenly fingers and dismantle sin like it never existed. And the answer is no. He can't do that. And again, if you permit me a, a story or two to illustrate this. If you remember, I think a few weeks ago I was preaching and I told you about a speeding violation that I got when I was on my way to the university where I teach. Remember that? And I said, I got this thing in the mail that, you know, said, you owe the uh, highway department or whatever it was so much money. And I thought, oh, they got the wrong person. And then there was the picture of the back of my car and the license plate in color. <laughs> Remember that? Okay, well, after the service that Sunday, two or three people said to me, hey, did you hear? What? They haven't, uh, or there, there's a reversal of that decision. Somebody is suing them because the cameras were in the wrong place, they weren't calibrated right, blah, blah, blah. So you should be getting a refund. <laughs> well, okay, that was good news, but I waited about two weeks, and sure enough, the letter came. And I can still see the word, lovely word on the letter, dismissed forgiven. I sinned. I was forgiven. Now, when you think about it for a minute, when I, and I did, okay, so when I <laughs> sped, when I, when I went over the speed limit, it was lowered because of the construction, but uh, nevertheless. Wrong is wrong. Yeah. Did I really cost the highway department any money? It's not like I broke through a barrier or, you know, hurt one of their workers or something. I just went a little faster than normal. And they're charging me all this money because I did that. So for them to say, you don't owe that any money, any, owe that money anymore, they weren't out that money, right? They just created this law that said, if you go this faster, you pay this money. 
it was lining their pockets, so to speak. It's not like they said, oh, we'll take that money and pay for the cones that were damaged when you sped. No. Some people think, that's what sin is like. Okay, God, so I blew it. Come on, nobody's perfect. Can't you just snap your fingers and make it go away? Uh, you know, it's like it's a fictitious thing, made-up rule. You can unmake it. Well, let me tell you another story that hasn't happened but could happen. So let's say some Sunday morning I'm rushing to church and I'm driving in the parking lot here. I turn right as I'm coming down 152 and I'm texting at the same time and oops, boom, and I smash into Shep's car. That's number one car right there as I come in. <gasps> My airbag goes off. I notice I, this wasn't a fender bender. I literally smashed right in from the front door to the back door. My car's ruined, or at least really messed up, and his car, it probably isn't drivable. I sinned. Now, what's the difference between the two? There's a real cost to the damage that I did when I sinned. First of all, there's damage to me because, oh, my neck is I'm shaking. Who knows? I'm going to have to go get some x-rays. I, I think I just broke the law by texting when I'm driving. If a cop comes and then uh, my car... Ah, uh, Shep's car, oh no, I got it. And then I have to go tell him. There's relational damage. Maybe, hopefully not, but right? First time he hears it, he's not going to say, oh, okay, no problem. <laughs> and then he's got his bill to pay, which my insurance, this is why we have insurance, right? My insurance is going to pay. There's real damage that starts to overflow from one thing that I did. That, my friends, is what the Bible describes as sin. Sin doesn't just violate God's law, it's an evil that damages God's glory, his reputation, and not his person, and it continues to flow over in violence, damage to other people from me, the, the, the perpetrator. That's why in the prophets of the Old Testament, God just doesn't say, yeah, evil, well, I don't really like it, but it's not that big a deal. No, he hates sin. Listen, Isaiah chapter 61 for I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. Jeremiah 44. Again and again, I have sent my servants, the prophets, who said, do not do this detestable thing that I hate. Amos 5. I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Zechariah 8, do not plot evil against each other and 
do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. And then, when you look at Micah, like we've just done, every chapter we see God's attitude towards sin. Chapter 1, where just in the beginning verses, God is described as coming down from heaven and the mountains melt beneath him and the valleys split apart like wax before the fire. Why? Because of the sins of the people of Israel. Chapter 2, therefore the Lord says, I am planning disaster against this people. Chapter 3, Micah said, but as for me, I am filled with power with the Spirit of the Lord and justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Chapter 4, writhe in agony, daughter Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you must leave the city to camp in an open field. You will go to Babylon. Chapter 5. I will take vengeance in my anger and wrath on the nations that have not obeyed me. Chapter 6. Therefore, I have begun to destroy you, to ruin you because of your sins. And chapter 7, you heard this a moment ago. The day God visits you has come, the day your watchmen sound the alarm. The reason for God hating sin and telling his people, I hate sin, was not simply to inform them, but to conform them to God's will, which means turn from your sin. Repent. That's the message of the prophets. God hates sin, and he wants his people to hate it as well. And that's why in Romans 12, verse 9, Paul says this, Love must be sincere. Hate what is evil. Cling to what is good. I know, you might be thinking, wow, this is the Old Testament. Come on, give us a break. That's when there was an angry God who didn't like sin. Give me the Jesus who loves sinners and forgives. And what I want to say is, same God, same message. God always hates sin, and God always forgives sinners. But I'm talking about God hating sin and God's people hating sin. That's why more and more we need to, as 1 John 1, 9 says, confess our sins, not own them, not defend them, repent of them. And God is faithful and just, and He will forgive us our sins and continue to purify us from all unrighteousness. That's the message of the prophets. That's the message of Micah. That's the message of God for Chelton. Knowing our God as the one who hates evil makes us walk humbly in hope. And if you were here last week, you know that part of hating sin and repenting 
is also lamenting for our sin. If you aren't here, check out the, uh, the video or the audio as Pastor Jen explained the beginning of chapter 7, where Micah, hearing about sin, didn't just say, well, yeah, that's people, or that's somebody else. He was broken. He was wounded. He even complained. He lamented. That's the, that's the godly thing to do when you hear about sin, whether it's in your own heart or in your church family or in the world around you. Sin should weigh us down because of the damage that it inflicts. It inflicts damage on the, on the victim and the perpetrator. It's so evil. It's like a disease. It's like a virus. And it, it just permeates humanity. And, and it's important to learn to feel it, to lament. And Pastor Jin reminded us last week, though, that you don't stay down. You go down, but you don't stay down. Why? Because Micah said in verse 8, after the passage right before it in the first seven verses where he's feeling <laughs> the walls are just crumbling all around him, he says in verse 8, Though I have fallen, I will rise. Though I sit in darkness, and you might expect something like, I will get up, but it doesn't say that. It says, the Lord will be my light. And so right there is the turn. Here's the hinge in the passage. And the passage that I have for us today Verses 18, 19, 20, the last three verses, are so beautiful and so wonderful, and they start with a question. It's the most important question that anybody can ever ask in life. Let's read the last three verses. Here's what verse 18 starts with. Here's the question. Who is a God like you? Then he answers it. Who pardons sin and forgives the transgression of the remnant of his inheritance? You do not stay angry forever, but delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all our iniquities into the depths of the sea. You will be faithful to Jacob and show love to Abraham as you pledged on oath to our ancestors in days long ago. Wow. Who is like our God? Not just who is our God. He's a God who hates sin, yes. And He is a God who forgives sin, yes. But what kind of God is like that? In the ancient world, in today's world, the surprising thing is that God, the true God, even forgives sin at all. Like, who says He has to? We are so used to getting things when we demand, right? Order it, ask for it, 
If I don't get it, throw a fit. Who says God is supposed to forgive our sin? We're not equals with God. No one deserves it. But this passage says in verse 18, God delights to show mercy to those who ask for it. Mercy. Now, come with me for a moment. We're going to drill down a bit on this word, mercy, in the NIV. If you have a different translation, it might read something like steadfast love, love, loving kindness, unfailing love, faithful love. And you say, hold it. Can't these translators get their act together? Why is it all over the place? Well, first of all, it's not all over the place. Secondly, the Hebrew word is so rich and full that one word can't do it justice. The meanings spill out. And the word, and we've mentioned it before a few weeks ago, Shep mentioned it, is hesed, H-E-S-E-D. Remember that? It's a word you should know. There's a few of them in the Old Testament Hebrew, a few in Greek. So our lesson today is chesed. Yeah. It means unfailing love. Now, you ever see a stork? You've heard of storks? Some of you have heard of storks in association with what? babies. So I don't know what the latest myth is. Are they still saying that babies come from storks or from Amazon or I don't know. <laughs> but stork. Now, a stork apparently treats its young with such undying love and affection, unlike any other birds, that the Hebrews called the name in Hebrew, Hasidah. They could look and see that's the definition of that word. Unlike any other bird, there is unfailing love. There is mercy being shown from a mother to a young stork. God is indescribably kind to his people who are in the nest, in that covenant relationship with him. In, uh, it's called here those, the remnant of his people. That's us. God just overflows with it. That's who he is first. Now, I think this can best be seen in an illustration back in the Old Testament. I think many of you know it. It goes like this. The people of Israel came out of Egypt. God mightily delivered them with the Red Sea. And now they are waiting to get the law from this fiery mountain where Moses is getting the actual words of God. And the people are down. They're not playing video games. They're not playing cards. They're, right? They're worshiping a fertility god that they brought out of Egypt called the bull or the young calf or 
you, you know it, right? The golden calf. And Moses comes down and God says to him, move aside, Moses. That's blatant sin, idolatry. They're thumbing their nose at me. They're rejecting me. I don't need them. My wrath must be spent on them. And Moses says, God, please, God, you can't do that. They are your people. They're in your nest. You brought them out with a strong arm. What will the nations say? The other pagan nations. Please forgive them. And God says, all right, I will. And God does. Just like that. And then Moses says to God, well, God, wow, what kind of God are you? Can I know more of you? Can I see your glory? Remember, he was up on that mountain, and he was actually talking to God. And he said, God said back to him, when my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. He was he was too awesome to actually be experienced by Moses or he would have died. So the story goes like this. And God passed in front of Moses proclaiming these words. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, hesed, and faithfulness, maintaining love, hesed, to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See why this is so pivotal? Here, God himself tells us what he is like. And the order is really important. He doesn't start with, I hate sin. He could have. But he starts, I am the compassionate God. I show unfailing love to my people. That's who God is. He is good. And he is just. Don't separate them. And don't pick your favorite. They are both true of God. Who is a God like you? And you know, I just have to say that in John chapter 1, when the apostle writes about Jesus, he says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. He says, we have seen his glory. Remember Moses looking at God's glory? The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace. Hesed is the Hebrew alternate there. It's a Greek word. Full of grace and truth. That's Jesus quick to show mercy. But hold it now. In Old Testament times, though, because we're back in Micah now, how did that work? Because if God could forgive, remember, sin is real damage, 
not just fictitious, you know, snap your fingers and it's gone. So how does God forgive? You say, well, he set up a, a system there, a symbolic system of animal blood for human sin. And it doesn't take a lot of smarts to realize, well, hold it, that's not exactly apples and apples, right? Animal, human? Why isn't it human blood for human blood? And the answer is that it is. Here's the gospel. God sent his son, fully human, not an animal, fully man, to die for the sins of mankind. That's the good news. That the debt that needed to be paid to satisfy God's wrath was, in fact, paid only by God himself who could pay that debt. Here's what Paul says in Romans 3. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness, his justice, because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand in the Old Testament unpunished, right? Animal blood didn't cut it. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time when he sent Jesus so as to be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Oh, how beautiful is this? God's demands are satisfied by God himself. His justice is satisfied. His mercy is given. And now it can be freely offered, as it was and always will be, for those who ask for it. That's why Psalm 85 says, Love and faithfulness meet together. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. In the cross is the most profound, mysterious, and marvelous way that sin is atoned for. And we could never get over that. And so Micah ends his book with this beautiful God-centered vision. You know, he, he could have repeated what he said in chapter 6 where he said, Here's what the Lord requires of you to act justly. There's justice, right? To, to hate evil, in other words. And to love mercy, that's hesed, and to walk humbly with your God. He could have said that, but he, I think he knew that if we keep our eyes on our God, who is totally right, and hate sin, and totally merciful, and has paid the price for sin, that will trickle down into our hearts and make us people like our God. At one time, a while ago, there was a young man who was struggling to personalize this. He knew it in his head but he couldn't feel it in his heart. So he even was, a, was a, a Christian, like a Christian leader. And he tells us that he 
even went on a mission trip to tell people of another language and land about Jesus and the gospel. And he went from England to the state of Georgia before the United States was even formed as a nation. And he was sharing the good news of Jesus. But he writes in his journal, I told them and they believed, but I just didn't have the kind of response that they did. So he came back to England, and one night he was heading, apparently, uh, through someone's suggestion, to a Bible study. So he writes this in his journal. In the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where someone was reading Martin Luther's preface to the Epistle of Romans. And about quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation, and an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. His name is John Wesley, and the year was 1738. And later that week, he wrote a song that we're going to close with in a minute, where he expresses not just knowing the facts, but feeling the beautiful truth. And he starts it with, can it be? that Christ died for me? Can it be? Because he knew that sin, he, he lived it. Sin just weighed him down. And Christ forgave his sin by his mercy. Now, if you're here today and you feel weighed down or maybe you know it in your head, but you haven't felt it in your heart, keep looking. Keep asking. God is here. The cross is not just behind me on the stage. It's an empty cross, and the risen Christ is here, ready to give his forgiveness to you, eternal life for the asking. So, Lord, we thank you for the book of Micah. Thank you that you have always hated sin, and you always will. Thank you that someday all evil will be put in its place. Thank you that you are a forgiving God. You always have been. You always will be. And thank you that when we see our Lord Jesus face to face when he returns, we will have all eternity to sing about your amazing love. In his name we pray. Amen.